2: You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and there's a whole lot to get through today. Here's what's ahead. A small step forward in stimulus talks with a new proposed package and meetings today. But the market isn't sold yet. We'll get the latest details. Plus, the value of nothing, the asset that investors may be overlooking when buying stocks, and it could give a big-time boost to returns. And the Tiffany battle continues, Group Watch from Disney, and Microsoft thinks you miss your commute. But we begin with today's markets. Dom Chu is here with those numbers for us. Hi, Dom.
3: All right, so that's one heck of a virtual presence device that you've got going on over there right now. But I am going to look over here to the markets because at the lows of the session, we were down about 256 points on the Dow Jones Industrial Average. You can see we were positive at one point, but the S&P 500 still eyeing that 33 55 area. Remember, that's a big one there for those people who look at those moving averages. That's the 50 day and the Nasdaq composite just about flat. So the real outperformer on the day as it's been outperforming to the upside and underperforming to the downside. Keep that in mind. Two of the sectors that have been the most volatile over the course of the past couple of weeks. If you look each day, it tends to show you that financials and energy stocks, those two sectors, have been the most volatile. They really do lead on the upside, and they're falling a lot today. So in a down market, these two particular sectors have taken it on the chin even more. But remember, very much so down moves over the trend-wise for the course of the past year-to-date period. So watch financials and energy as well. And then one stock that's really breaking out to the upside today, Beyond Meat. Alternative meat, faux meat, fake meat, however you want to call it. This particular stock is up nine percent. It is expanding a distribution partnership with Walmart. It's going to bring those Beyond Meat, Alt Meat products to about twenty four hundred more Walmart stores. Remember, a two hundred and forty percent move to the upside roughly for Beyond Meat just since the pandemic lows. So keeping on Beyond Meat shares. Those are big movers to the upside. Kel, I will send things back over to you.
2: All right. I chuckle every time I hear the phrase alt meat. It makes me think of alt rock or something. (laughs) Do it together. Yes. Uh, Don, thank you, sir. And shall we quickly move from Wall Street to Washington? The markets appear to be taking their cues from Capitol Hill. There have been a lot of talks, but so far, little action. Elon Moy does join us with the latest state of play this afternoon. Elon?
4: Well, Kelly, I guess you can call House Democrats' plan alt-stimulus. There has been a lot of talk from some key players in the negotiations this morning, and so far the signs have been pretty positive. Uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi spoke with the Treasury Secretary this morning for about 50 minutes. Afterwards, she said she was optimistic and hopeful that a deal could be reached, maybe even this week. That sentiment was echoed by White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows when he was on Capitol Hill this morning.
5: The Secretary and I have had a couple of conversations this morning. We also had a conversation with the President. So hopefully we'll make some progress
4: and uh, find a solution for the and Kelly, I am hearing privately from Republicans that there is basically no chance that they can support the Democrats' proposal as is. And right now it's still unclear what significant concessions either side will be willing to make. Back over to you.
2: So, Elon, are we just waiting for these talks to peter out and kind of go nowhere? I mean, I I have (laughs) wonder why we even follow them. You you know what I'm saying?
4: You know, it's interesting because uh, just before I got on camera here, I was speaking with a Republican source, and I said, I'm surprised that the secretary and the speaker are still talking to each other. And this person said, you're not the only one. So, you know, I think that there, as long as there's still, is those lines of communications that are open. There is still hope for a deal to be reached. But at the same time, uh, you know, there's very far apart. There's very little time left to cut a deal before the election. So we will see what comes out of this. Democrats are holding their weekly caucus meeting tomorrow. So that could be one of those inflection points.
2: It's like they always said with the U.S. and Russia and the Cold War, the Soviet Union. You know, as long as there was a hotline between the two, you'd hope maybe things wouldn't get too bad. Elon, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much. Uh, Elon Moy with the latest from Capitol Hill. And while those stimulus talks struggle along in Washington, COVID cases and deaths continue to rise. The global death toll has now reached more than a million people. The U.S. has had more deaths than any other country. And the case count has started to tick back up. What if this trend continues? Well, Meg Terrell has more on that for us. Meg?
6: Hey, Kelly. Well, what we might see if this trend continues is, of course, tightening restrictions, but probably more localized restrictions, not nationwide lockdowns like we saw at the beginning. And we are starting to see that across areas in Europe and in Canada. Of course, we remember last week, the UK started to tighten restrictions there. Montreal uh, just now raising its status to what it calls red alert, not allowing guests to visit at home and closing restaurants, bars, movie theaters and other businesses. We're also seeing across Europe these kinds of tightening restrictions. We saw Spain last week, the week before. Now the Netherlands and France starting to impose tighter restrictions in certain cities. The Netherlands' three largest cities and its health minister saying, quote, we're doing our best, but the virus is doing better. And two cities in the south of France also having to close bars, cafes, and restaurants for two weeks. Uh, Of course, in the United States, we are headed in the wrong direction, and experts like Dr. Scott Gottlieb warn us about what that'll mean for the fall.
3: Heading indoors, kids are back in school, kids are back in college campuses, work is trying to restart, people are becoming more complacent and tired of the restrictions, and so all of those conditions are going to set up a fall in the winter. I think that that's going to create a lot of risk. And you're certainly seeing the rising infections right now, so we're taking an awful lot of infection to probably what's going to be the most dangerous season for this virus.
6: And Kelly, we're seeing evidence of that right here in the New York City area. Mayor Bill de Blasio is saying that the positivity rate in New York City ticking above 3% uh, for the first time in months, the highest rate since June. The seven-day positivity rate still at 1.4%, and his threshold for considering closing schools is 3% on the seven-day average. Of course. Thousands, hundreds of thousands of kids going back to school in the city today. and indoor dining set to begin tomorrow. But of course, the city is talking about potential targeted restrictions in certain areas, seeing the worst case increases. Kelly?
2: And we saw the market tick down uh, after that news. All right, Meg, thanks very much. Our Meg Terrell with the latest for us. So have the markets priced in this potential surge of cases, or could we face a repeat of the panic we saw back in March? Joining me now to talk more about that, Steve Whiting is Global Chief Investment Strategist at Citi Private Bank. And Dan Genter is CEO of RNC Genter Capital Management. It's great to have you both here. Steve, you're a little more constructive in general on the markets and on the economy. So, you know, what do you say to investors who are concerned about how much worse the headlines could get or if we start to have further restrictions on economic activity?
7: Well, look, I think this near term period where we have not only COVID winter, but significant policy uncertainty about the United States, when you can't be certain who will be the president of the United States, what party will be in control then you're going to have some elevated volatility. It's already there uh, in the options market where you can see uh, twice uh, the usual level of implied volatility and actual equity markets uh, only in the past month have sort of caught up with that. But that isn't the outlook for the whole year to come. And certainly when you think about the alternatives for issues that we will resolve, we will certainly uh, resolve the election by the beginning of the year. We will, uh, in every likelihood, with six COVID vaccines and late-stage clinical trials, um, have a very likely medical solution next year. It's going to be a very different economy. And then taking your money out of a good portfolio and putting it in incredibly rich bond markets or negative real-yield cash doesn't seem like uh, an ideal thing to do. I think it will be very mistimed.
2: So, Dan, let me ask you this, because some of the the names, the picks that you'd recommend are in the financials, uh, in the energy space. In order for investors to feel comfortable on those, do they basically have to be making a bet that the COVID, that the pandemic in general is going to get better? I mean, can you own names in those sectors without being exposed to every little twist and turn of the macro?
8: Well, I think, Kelly, agreeing with what Steve said, we're just going to be in for a period, especially the next 30 days prior to the election, of just having extreme volatility. And we're still dealing with the COVID situation and the recovery and the vaccines and all the things that everyone's discussing. But I think when you look at these issues, I think there's three reasons to own them. Number one, frankly, right now, is it's, it's a good place to hide out. You know, these financial issues, uh, the energy issues in particular, I mean, they've been beat up pretty bad. So when you look at where the PEs are, they're trading at very reasonable levels right now. Uh, energy consumption is starting to recover. It's only down 10 percent from pre-COVID. And we're seeing the economic numbers slowly but surely begin to recover. So if they're, if they're in a basing pattern where they are now, and many of them are paying 4%, some even 6% while you wait, it's only taxed at 20%. And I think clearly we're looking you know, into 2021 of seeing earnings go up, you know, not dramatically, but 5 or 6%. So if you can wait this out, average out 4%, yeah. 4.5%, it's a, it's a good place to really wait this out going into 2021.
2: So maybe put differently, you'd say there's enough of a margin of safety there uh, because of the low valuations to even handle some bumps in the road that we might hit. Steve, I'll turn back to you then, because real estate is one of the, the places that you're recommending. Why?
7: Well, look, this is a very beaten down part of the economy. It's certainly a beaten down part of the markets. And certainly there will be some distressed areas. Uh, Will we go back to use office space uh, at full occupancy as if nothing happened if there is uh, a COVID vaccine? Uh, Probably not. Um, Are we going to see shopping centers filled with uh, lots of parents uh, looking for a place to go with their children? Yes. Um, Have we seen any reason why people who are going to use uh, their home, using their apartment as their office, not pay their rent if they have a job? No. So I think that there are um, real distressed values, good dividends to be had. Uh, And in fact, if we take a look in credit markets, the commercial mortgage-backed securities market, for one, in uh, investment-grade territory, has higher yields uh, than the junk bond market. Uh, And so we always look for portfolios. We want to hold on to the things that have held uh, and allowed the economy to adapt. That includes technology stocks. Uh, Many have got a bit too rich uh, to really concentrate and have at the very high level uh, at market weightings. Mm-hmm. But uh, we have to, we have to start to add. When you think about the economy the year ahead, you do need to take advantage of uh, these uh, lower prices now. Uh, and that's why we have a modest overweight across yeah. the world in real estate assets.
2: It makes sense. I mean, it's, it's an interesting point. Dan, I'll circle back to your specifics so our audience knows. You'd say Phillips 66, Semper Energy, J.P. Morgan. Are there any others?
8: Well, I think in general, again, there's some some bottom fishing that you can do. Additional names, Bank of America, et cetera, all in the financials. And I think what you're seeing, Kelly, is that, uh, you know, loan creation is picking up. The government stimulus is bringing people back to work. People are getting reemployed. All the consumption numbers are going up. And I think, again, these are names that have uh, more or less bottomed out. And I'd be looking to buy them on any weakness. And to be able to capture that dividend, which is just going to be very, very efficient. I mean, the bond market is very, very rich right now. Obviously, you're getting zero in money market funds. And, uh, and a lot of people, you can't just exit the market because you have huge embedded capital gains that you're, you have a certainty you'll have to pay as a liability. So these are just all strong names where that, that flow, I think you're getting in at a good price point with a three-year time horizon.
2: All right. Gentlemen, thank you both. Appreciate it. Some specifics amount some of consensus ideas. Dan Genter and Steve Whiting talk about these markets. Coming up, the markets might have soured in September, but consumers did not. The latest confidence reading jumping. So what's behind the disconnect? We'll explore that. Plus, the clock is ticking for the cruise industry as it waits a new decision on whether or not they can sail. The stocks have been volatile the past few months. We're going to look at what investors should expect. And Disney says sharing is caring. Group Watch is ahead of us in rapid fire today. We're back in a couple. Stay with us here on The Exchange.
9: This is The Exchange on CNBC.
2: Welcome back to the exchange. Consumer confidence rebounding nicely in September after declining the two prior months. The conference board saying confidence at 101.8. That's our highest rating since March. Consumers are also more optimistic about the short term outlook and all of this coming even as the market sold off last month and the COVID numbers picked back up. Joining me now with more on the state of the consumer and the economy, Steve Odland is president and CEO of the conference board and a CNBC contributor. Steve, it's good to have you. And I'm going to delve right into one of the details here that I think is fascinating. I don't want to make too much of it, but there is less confidence amongst lower, um, amongst younger people right now. Um, Are you seeing a generational split here emerge regarding attitudes about what's going on with the economy right now?
5: Well, you do see differences in people who have jobs and they're safe versus those that uh, may be a little bit more skittish and that tends to be you know the younger group you do see some regional differences too but this is a big jump in the consumer confidence index for the conference board this month it wasn't so much in the present situations in other words how people are feeling about today it was more on how they expect things to happen in the next six months and they expect business conditions to improve they expect jobs to improve and they expect salaries to go up but you just have to look at this and say well okay That's because we should probably be into spring by that time. Maybe we'll have a vaccine. People are feeling like we could get back to normal. We're starting to edge that way. Now, the big question is, what does this mean for the holidays? Because if they're six months out feeling a lot better, but not so much today, in between, we've got this huge holiday season. And the question is whether they're going to spend. This suggests that they should open their wallets a bit for the holidays. It's not going to be like it was last year, but it's not going to be like it was in the uh, early COVID days either.
2: Steve, what do you make of the fact that we're not picking up on much angst, if you can call it that, over the stimulus bill? So, you know, obviously on the business side, people are looking for the stuff we've discussed, liability shield, you know, et cetera. Um, from a very top level, we know that there's concern in the economy broadly from the, from the economists and policy types about this... Are you picking up on this concern, though, amongst the consumers themselves? And if not, why do you think that is? I think that we're not.
5: And the consumers themselves are looking at what they're experiencing now and what their companies are telling them or what they feel like they're going to experience in six months. So right now, you're either doing great, you know, which is a good sector of the economy, or not, and you've got assistance. They're not depending on the bill. And I think that's what it tells us. They're not expecting You know big great things on the stimulus now from a business standpoint small businesses are expecting it large businesses that are in trouble like the airlines and so forth are expecting uh some stimulus help here but i don't think that you're seeing it at the consumer level because their jobs are more dependent on you know the here and the now
2: do you think that the order you know we we go back throughout history and and we look at you know the market sensitivity to all these different kinds of indicators and we say okay you know, jobless claims are usually a leading indicator. Consumer confidence is usually a coincident indicator. The unemployment rate is usually a lagging indicator. But is that all scrambled right now? I mean, jobless claims certainly do not feel leading. They're probably lagging. Consumer confidence, do we categorize that as lagging or as leading? And when you, your point about the small businesses, why I bring this up, is that now a leading indicator? Because if they're the ones where confidence is really deteriorating, they're the a big employers in the economy, is that kind of where we're picking up on some early troubles, trouble signs.
5: Well, I think you could look at this, these results as an early indicator because it's it's projecting out six months. That's where you see the big change. You know, we're about halfway back to where we were uh, at the depth of the, the early COVID days and pre-COVID. So, you know, we're, we're about halfway. People are feeling like we've gotten through a lot of it. But a lot of this is just unknown, right? So it's their expectations based on what they're projecting will happen. And, you know, there's an election in here which is not indicated uh, in, in these numbers at all. So I think it's a little bit of, a, of an early indicator, which means it's a good sign, which is why I'm feeling better about the holiday season than I did a few months ago. But, you know, the, the big thing is the, the, these small businesses. And I say that because it's a huge amount of employment, as we all know, and they're not being taken care of here. A lot of them have been shut down you know, as we know. And, you know, in some areas they're being allowed back, but, but they're being allowed back in such a restricted way that they're not back to normal. If they're not, if they don't get, if we don't get those PPPs back in, in some of these sectors taken care mm-hmm. of, you know, if we don't take care of the airlines, we may not have an airline industry. So these are really important things. I think Congress and the administration understands this, which is why they're moving back towards a bill. But I, the real wild card here, as you said, and correctly so, is the small business sector.
2: Yeah, it's fascinating. Uh, again, it's it's different. I mean, this is a pandemic. This is not like the recent recessions we've been through. And I think we have to kind of watch all the data with the, with an eye to that. Steve, thanks very much for joining us to talk through the confidence numbers. Appreciate it. Steve Odlin with the Conference Board. Still ahead here on the exchange, it's the value of nothing. Are investors not placing enough value on the kinds of assets that you can't see? Bank of America says they're not, and they're going to join us to explain why and how they're playing it. Plus, a spicy stock. We'll look at one company whose P.E., whose price-to-earnings multiple, is outpacing some of the biggest tech names and has done nearly as well since the lows. That and more ahead on The Exchange. Stay with us.
12: At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time.
9: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you.
2: Welcome back to The Exchange, keeping a check on markets right now. Dow's down about 180 points. We are down 245 at the lows, so we're up from that, but we're still firmly in the red across the board by anywhere from a third uh, to about two-thirds of a percent ranked there from the NASDAQ to the Dow. As I mentioned, we did see some weakness after New York City's COVID case count. Meg Trail spoke to us about that uh, at the top of the hour. In the meantime, let's check in on the sectors, and it's the flip side of what we saw yesterday. Today, all 11 are in the red. Energy, financials, and industrials leading to decline. So typically, you're reopening rotation basket. You're not seeing that today. Again, it speaks to some of the pandemic angst uh, that is out there. Let's check on some of the individual movers this hour. And RH is getting another boost on the street after Cowan upgraded the stock to outperform from market perform. They're saying this company is set to benefit from, you guessed it, consumers investing in their homes. The shares are up 5%. The airlines are all moving lower as the industry waits for any stimulus help from the government, with thousands of furloughs and layoffs expected to begin this week if that aid doesn't come. JetBlue, for instance, is down 5% today. We're seeing, uh, but a, you know, mid-single-digit uh, declines across the board. And one stock we don't talk about often, that's a joke, uh, Carvana. It's up today after Piper Sandler raised its price target by more than $50 on strong fundamentals. Carvana is now up six-fold since the March lows. It's up 4%. I could look out my window right now and point to the Carvanas, uh, cars people got uh, from Carvana out on the street. For let's get to Sue Herrera, though. She's got our CNBC News update. Hi, Sue. Hi,
10: Kelly. Good to see you. Here's what's happening at this hour, everyone. A grand juror in the Brianna Taylor case says the Kentucky Attorney General's office misrepresented deliberations and did not offer the panel the option of indicting the two officers who fatally shot Taylor. That is according to the juror's lawyer. The AG's office has agreed to release recordings from the panel's discussion after initially refusing to do so. The International Space Station is leaking air at above normal levels. But according to NASA, it poses, quote, no immediate danger to the crew, end quote. Work continues to locate the source of that leak. And the USS Stout, a guided missile destroyer ship, has been stuck at sea for a record 208 days due to the COVID-19 pandemic. The Navy has limited port visits in an effort to reduce sailors' exposure after a major outbreak broke out earlier this year on another ship. You are up to date, Cal. That's the news update. Back to you.
2: Thank you very much, Sue. Now to our mystery stock that we teased earlier. It's McCormick. The spice maker shares are lowered today after an earnings beat, but the stock has seen a nice run since the lows. It's up about 70, 70%. Now, what makes the stock really stand out is its price to earnings ratio. The consumer staple now has a bigger forward P.E. than some of the tech giants. So McCormick comes in at 34X, Apple at 31, Microsoft at 32, and Alphabet at 28. So McCormick outpaces them all. They reinstated their profit outlook today for the remainder of the year, a hopeful sign. They're projecting single-digit sales growth year over year. They also announced a two-for-one stock split. And you thought big tech was spicy. By the way, speaking of McCormick, the CEO will join Jim Cramer tonight on Mad Money at 6 p.m. Eastern time. So don't miss it. Coming up, Google says if you can't beat them, join them. The Amazon personal shopper, a luxury lawsuit. And do workers miss their commute? It's all ahead in rapid fire.
0: But wait, there's more. The Exchange is also a podcast. Listen to your favorite parts of the show you might have missed. Sign up now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts.
2: let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar today. It is time for Rapid Fire. Here to break down the headlines, we welcome Robert Frank, Julia Borston, and John Fort. And our first topic today, if you can't beat them, join them. That's what Google seems to be doing by requiring Android app developers to use the company's in-app payment system, which takes a 30% fee from each transaction. Sound familiar? It should. This comes as Apple's App Store policies, including its own 30% cut have come under a lot of fire from developers and regulators. So, John Ford, why is Google making this move now? I mean,
11: they've been trying to well. They've been meaning to do this all along, but not trying. It was kind of an honor system. 97% of the companies, the apps in the Google Play Store are paying through Google's app system, but some notable ones have sort of skirted it, gotten around it, and now Google's saying, okay, everybody, now everybody's got to follow the rules. This shows the difference between Google and Apple. Apple's like, pay me up front, and is going to hit you with a stick if you don't pay. Google's a little late to its own party.
0: Julia? Julia? I think it'll be really interesting to see what happens here in terms of Google's Android platform, allowing people to use other app stores. Google has been a little bit more flexible, as John said. But something that John and I have talked about a lot on Squawk Alley is this idea of these platform wars. And right now, you have Google and Apple that are the gatekeepers. You have to pay them effectively a tax if you're going to be distributing through them. And historically, Google has been a lot more flexible. They said that next year's Android release would make it much easier to use other app stores. And we just have to wait and see if they continue to do that. Or they're using this as an opportunity right now to really align with Apple and double yeah. down.
2: If I were Apple, I'd be loving it because it's like, look, we're not the only ones. Google's doing it, too. This is just industry practice. What's the problem? Uh, next up, let's talk about what a saga this has become. LVMH, the parent company of Louis Vuitton, is trying desperately to get out of its deal to buy jeweler Tiffany. Their latest lawsuit says, uh, or I should say lays out three reasons for why LVMH should be allowed to terminate the agreement. Number one, they say Tiffany has suffered a material adverse effect as a result of the pandemic. Number two, they say they've also materially breached the agreement due to financial mismanagement. And number three, they say the letter they received from the French government makes it impossible to close the deal. Tiffany's chairman responded, saying, quote, LVMH's specious arguments are yet another blatant attempt to evade its contractual obligation to pay the agreed upon price for Tiffany. Robert Frank, I love this story. And this is not just a a war between two luxury, you know, purveyors of goods. To me, if they can prove that the pandemic materially damaged Tiffany, that would have implications for a whole lot of other companies and deals, right?
13: Yeah, absolutely would. Now, what's interesting about this is you have two very genteel, sophisticated luxury companies just going to the mat in the battle of the bling and the war of words here has really gotten ugly. Basically, Tiffany accusing LVMH of lying, LVMH accusing Tiffany of being horribly mismanaged. So it's really hard to see any good outcome of the two of these getting together. I mean, ultimately this either gets renegotiated at a lower price or there's some kind of breakup where LVMH pays a fee. But right now they're going to court. The case starts in Delaware in early January. And you're right. LVMH says, look, Tiffany is a business that has 80 percent of its stores in malls. So that's not a good place to be. And by the way, 90 percent of its sales last year came from brick and mortar stores. So without LVMH, it's really hard to see where Tiffany goes, at least in the near term.
2: I want to know what John Ford's take
11: <laughs> I mean, it's just funny. It's like buyer's remorse over a luxury purchase. I mean, how many customers of these two companies have experienced this over the years? But, I mean, Ro- Robert <laughs> summed it up well. Uh, but, but, but this deal happened before the pandemic. Should they be allowed to get out of it? I don't know. Should, should you be allowed to return that bag for a full refund?
2: Yeah, you're saying... Yes. The judge should turn around, you know, do you guys remember there, my dad gave me this great book when I was younger and it was, there was a judge, he was like a Chinese judge, these were fables, but he would make you pay in the form that you were injured. So, you know, one guy was accused of stealing the scent of rice and the judge made him pay by by taking his money and switching it from one hand to the next. So Ford, it's like saying to the luxury companies, all right, LVMH, you can abide by the by the terms that you would sell a handbag for. I, I love it. Yeah, I, I don't think anyone followed me. On Dante that
11: one. would appreciate that as well. It's kind of like they're in this circle of retail hell, having to having to pay for uh, their, their previous sins. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I think you've had a couple of bad uh, purchases uh, that we need to know about. I'm not much of Let's a luxury guy, so I'm just about... a
11: spectator. <laughs> <laughs>
2: So uh, what would happen if Netflix were a social media platform? That's what's happening over at Disney right now. Disney Plus will now have a group watch option in the U.S. The watch party function will allow up to seven subscribers to watch a program at once with the ability, and this is so important, to react to scenes with six different emoji. Uh, They can also control playback features for the entire group. Julia, what, I mean, six different emoji. Why not seven? But listen, Kelly, six, seven emoji,
0: whatever it is, there is not a better time to launch this sort of feature. And for for someone like Disney Plus, I think it's particularly important for Disney Plus because they're releasing these movies, which are events, which your kid is going to want to watch and they're going to want to watch it with their friends. And I have to admit, remember when Trolls 2 came out, it was a direct-to-consumer release towards the beginning of COVID. I tried to have my friends watch that with their friends via FaceTime and we had all these different devices set up. It didn't really work, but they were excited about the concept of it. This kind of thing would be so much easier and would allow parents to turn these big movie events, such as something like Mulan, which they would have to pay extra for, into something where kids can actually connect with their friends. So the timing is perfect.
2: Trolls. I love it. I, I do totally agree that this feels like an obvious feature to have, John. I mean, we, I, we should expect Netflix and all the others to, to, to move into the space. And, and frankly, why not do it now and use this as a way to experiment and maybe try to attract new users? There's nothing like the peer pressure of saying, hey, I better sign up for this streaming service when there's never been more to pick from because my five other friends are gonna watch something tonight and I can join them.
11: Yeah, I don't know about the shared remote thing. Uh, that, that's, that's the thing I'm worried about the most. There, are, there ought to be like some system where somebody gets upvoted to be the controller of the remote. Maybe I'm too authoritarian about that. I don't know. Uh, but but I, I do think that it's, it's certainly right in line with this generation because my kids, whether it's video games or watching something, they want to do it with their friends, You know, they get on uh, texting or, or, or whatever to talk about what's happening. But the problem is syncing up that main thing that they're all participating in. Video games do it naturally. Now here, I think, is movies and TV taking a cue from the video games.
2: Yeah, I, maybe it'll be a little distracting, or maybe for people who might not be watching that closely like the parents anyhow, it's just kind of like a fun sidebar. Uh, But I think we're going to see a lot more of it. Let's talk about Amazon's new personal shopping service for men, which they are launching. It'll cost $4.99 a month. It's an expansion of its existing service aimed at women, where an Amazon stylist picks up to eight items to send users. Stitch Fix shares, as you would expect, are lower on this news today. But Stitch Fix has three and a half million users versus the tens of thousands of customers currently using Amazon's personal shopper service. Robert, we probably even talked about it when it launched on rapid fire. I still have no recollection that this even exists. How big do you think that these categories are going to be for Amazon? Or is it just another thing they're just going to try and and just kind of see what happens?
13: Well, they already do it for women, and it's obviously working well. They've tested this in Canada for men. and, And look, I think there is a... Audience out there for people that just don't want to think and don't like to shop and like to have things sent to them. They could try them on, send them back. For me, the problem is they say there's going to be a stylist that that individually works at Amazon and picks your stuff. I think it's all going to be some algorithm, and they they pick these templates. I actually went on the site and started signing up because it asks you all these questions, and there are basically five categories that you have to belong to. One is like business casual, the other is outdoor casual, the other is workout. And, you know, the the business casual category, for instance, was all plaid. I don't know (laughs) who shows up to a business casual meeting in plaid, but but like unless you fit into one of these templates and then then they have all these things programmed for that sort of Ken doll, that's the outdoor (laughs) Ken doll, then... Then you don't like any of this stuff, so like I, for me, it doesn't work.
11: Now, here's the problem, Kelly. I think right. with this is that Amazon, like clothes on Amazon, are like shopping at Sears or J.C. for back to school. uh... And, and frankly, as a kid, never wanted to shop there. There are other stores where you'd rather go. <laughs> Stitch Fix is a little bit like higher and a little bit higher touch. So yeah, they say they've got a personal shopper helping you, but it's that worker at Sears or J.C. penny like they're taking you to the plaid,
0: and you don't. <laughs> You know, Robert doesn't want the plaid, right? (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, I'm learning so much. Kelly, I know that uh, John (laughs) and and Robert are both very fashionable, but I am the personal shopper for my husband. So I don't worry that Amazon is going to put me out of business in my personal shopping business for my husband. But I think what what, um, John just alluded to is the reality of why Stitch Fix has such an advantage. It doesn't have the sense of being part of this behemoth. People feel like they love getting the surprise of opening up their box and seeing what's in there. And Amazon really wants to be able to give people the choice before they ship
2: them the box. Oh, true. That's true. Yeah, I I think I would be more on the serendipitous part. And then it it, was... I guess at that point, you're, you get the plaid, you're stuck with it. Uh, finally, before we go, guys, I just want to mention this, head. to me, the head-scratcher story of the week. I mean, I get it, but this form, all right, here's, here's what's going on. Microsoft is introducing new personal well-being experiences in the first half of next year for people who are working from home. The updates include a virtual commute, so they're trying to give you the commute you've been missing, <laughs> Why? They say, well, then you can close out tasks and reflect on the day, enjoy a 10-minute guided meditation process produced by the mindfulness app Headspace. John, do you think that the, the commute is an important part of the kind of opening and closure of the workday?
11: No, Kelly. No, I don't. I mean, th- this sounds like a bunch of overachievers at Microsoft. Get, oh, the commute. I get so much done on my commute. I, I get my to-do list. Look, most of the people I was commuting with before the starter were playing video games. I mean, what, what's next? A virtual traffic jam? people can kind of sit there and, and <laughs> bang on the table and pretend they're honking a horn. I don't know. I don't like it.
2: Robert, I, all I know is it's care, character they're... formation for me, the commute every day. <laughs> and, uh, you know, trying to not lose my cool in traffic, it just shows, you know, it's, it shows how, how far of a journey there is still to go. I miss the podcast, though. I do.
13: Yeah, look, I get the idea of demarcating your day, having a beginning and an end. And when you're at home, you're just always working, or at least I am. The problem is, like John says, they're taking the worst part of the working front to the office and bringing that home. What's next? Like the virtual sandwich line, the virtual you have to replace the, the paper and the copier line. I mean, they're going to take every bad part of working in the office and bring it home. It's a bad idea. Julia, will give you the quick last word on
2: this.
0: I don't think creating a virtual commute when I have to also be staring at a screen like I do in the rest of my day, it's going to address the fact that the workday has just stretched out. Microsoft Teams has seen a dramatic increase. I believe it was a 48% increase in the volume of chat on Teams between 5 p.m. and midnight. Giving me 10 minutes when I'm not supposed to be looking at email is not going to fix that fact.
2: Just as long as
11: they give us... I think
2: the Wall Street Journal...
11: Just as long as they give us virtual kid interruptions when we come back to the office, (laughs) right? That's that's how that should work. (laughs)
2: Check out the Wall Street Journal today. They are calling, they say now some employers are offering Zoom breaks once a week because people are getting so Zoomed out. Guys, thank you all today. Robert Frank, Julia Borson, and John Fort. That does it for Rapid Fire. We greatly appreciate it. Coming up, the clocks are ticking on a couple of important COVID guidelines and further relief packages. The cruise industry is one in limbo ahead of the expiration of their no-sale order tomorrow. While unemployed Americans' extra benefits have expired, we're going to look at the fallout if time runs out on these right after this. Welcome back. Both American citizens and American companies are anxiously awaiting more aid and more guidance from the government. And while the Democrats have proposed a new $2.2 trillion stimulus deal, For many Americans, it's already too late as extra unemployment benefits have run out. Rahel Solomon has that story for us. Meantime, the cruise lines are hoping they can set sail after tomorrow. Seema Modi has a look at what that would mean for the industry. Seema, let's start with you.
12: Yeah, Kelly, a lot of money and jobs are riding on this decision. If the no-sale order is lifted, cruise lines can start welcoming guests as soon as November 1st and recoup some of the financial losses they've incurred due to the six-month shutdown. However, if health officials extend their ban on U.S. cruising to later this year, as some expect, it would further pressure the cruise operators that are already burning a lot of cash every month, as high as $650 million for Carnival and take aim at the 421,000 Americans that work in the cruise line industry. Yesterday, employees at Port Miami organized a protest urging the CDC to not extend its ban. The world's largest cruise port is already expecting to lose $55 million in revenue this year. Now, if it is a suspension that the CDC goes with, then the cruise lines and their loyal customer base, they want answers. In addition to the testing of crew and passengers and the extensive list of steps the industry is taking to keep their ships COVID-free, what else do they want to hear? What do they want to see on board? And we want those answers soon. Uh, That that announcement from the CDC expected uh, in the next couple hours, Kelly.
2: Wow. All right. Seema, thank you very much. Seema Modi. Let's get to Rahel Solomon meantime for what's at stake for the millions of unemployed Americans waiting on any extra more uh, any more extra benefits, I should say. Rahel.
14: Hi, Kelly. Yes. So while the unemployment rate last month did dip to eight point four percent, the lowest level since the pandemic began, tens of millions of people are still out of work. People like Colton Harpy of San Diego. He is a stand up comic and worked security at a comedy club. Well, when live entertainment was canceled indefinitely in mid-March, he lost his job maxed out his credit cards and borrowed from friends and family until he started receiving his unemployment with the additional $600 weekly. That, of course, ended in July when President Trump announced an additional $300 weekly benefit or lost wages assistance. Harpy says he was relieved. That is until he found out that his state unemployment is actually $2 below the minimum to qualify for LWA.
3: That's when the nightmare just kind of began again. And It's you know, I have trouble sleeping at night. Um, I I don't know day to day how I'm going to buy food and stuff. So it gets tough. It's 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 really tough.
14: So, Kelly, L.W.A., as you know, is now long gone. FEMA tells us the maximum benefit any state could have gotten was six weeks beginning August 1st. So without this additional action in Washington, Kelly, many more people will be solely reliant on their state benefits, just like Harvey. It's
2: so tough. Rahel, thank you very much for reporting that for us. Rahel Solomon with the very latest. Still ahead here, the majority of assets on the S&P 500 are now intangible. Think patents and proprietary data. We're going to look at the big value of nothing and why it's outperforming the actual value index. That's next. And then tomorrow, Delivering Alpha is back for its 10th year. Joining us, Stephen Mnuchin, Stephen Schwartzman, Mary Erdos, Carla Harris, Chamath Palahapatia, and many, many more. Visit DeliveringAlpha.com to learn more and register. We'll see you in a couple. It has been a tough time for value investors. In the last three years alone, value has given up 20 years' worth of gains. In fact, the gap between growth and value stocks is only getting wider this year. Bank of America says it's time to rethink the meaning of value, arguing that the worth of intangible assets, something value investors view as more or less nothing, deserves reconsideration. With us now is Jared Woodard. He's head of the Research Investment Committee at Bank of America Securities. Jared, it's good to have you back, and um, it would seem to me that actually people know that, you know, data and research is really valuable, but you're saying it's still underappreciated. Why?
1: Well, that's exactly right. I'm glad to be with you because uh, so many investors might not realize that a lot of the conventional metrics that we've used for decades to find good value opportunities, things like a price to book ratio, often use uh, calculations that exclude intangible assets, like patents, like proprietary databases, research and development, even investment in, in our own people. We think that the value of those kinds of assets is not zero dollars, as so many of the market metrics calculate today. Um, and in fact, those things are incredibly um, valuable. And, and so if we include those, we think you get very different results and it creates some opportunities for value investing that, as you mentioned, haven't been available for a very long time. We're on the cusp of the worst decade now for for value investors in history, worse than the dot-com bubble, and it's time for a rethink.
2: Let's talk about some of the companies that value investors should have, you know, in their baskets, on their screens, whatever you want to call it, by this standard. What would some of those names be?
1: Well, it's important to realize, I think, that traditional value investment uh, indexes and strategies have had really big holdings, big overweights in sectors like financials and energy, if you start to include the value of intangible assets, um, then many of those traditionally big overweights in, in banks or energy stocks uh, decrease a bit. And actually you find that there are better opportunities in some other sectors like consumer discretionary stocks, healthcare stocks, even consumer staples. Um, so we find that, you know, including those assets, um, when we test this historically, it uh, this kind of a strategy that takes account of intangible assets actually outperforms a conventional benchmark, by more than five percentage points a year. That adds up a lot over time, and it actually gives you less risk than many conventional value strategies.
2: There are names on here like Intel, Merck, Pfizer, even Comcast that makes sense to me. Uh, there are others, though, that are surprising. CVS, for example, Kraft Heinz, um, Kroger. You know, tell me why some of these companies deserve uh, you know, a second look.
1: Well, some of the names you mentioned, I think it's important to realize even if we think about things like uh, transportation stocks or um, uh, communications, even some industrial firms are able to take advantage of new technologies in their own businesses, things like supply chain logistics, artificial intelligence. Um, in order to modernize their business and and, and move into the future. Um, That's a little bit underappreciated, I think, by the market sometimes. We think of technology sector stocks as the only places where new technology can be adopted. I think that's a little bit mistaken. We also mentioned that the ways that companies invest in their people, that human capital, is incredibly valuable and hasn't been accounted for historically uh, as well. And if you include things like brand value, like the value of networks and connections, customer loyalty, Admittedly, these things are hard to calculate in terms of the true worth, but, but mm-hmm. if you think that they're worth something, that's worth including in your estimate, and it really transform, transforms the kinds of returns that you get um, versus a conventional strategy.
2: Yeah, it's more art than science, but that's been true of, of investing anyhow. Jared, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks. Jared Woodard on value. Let's take a look at shares of JP Morgan before we go. The company is set to pay a record $920 million to resolve probes from three federal agencies. Now, this is over its role in the alleged manipulation of metals in Treasury markets. This penalty is a record for spoofing, which means traders flooded the market with orders they had no intention of actually executing. The practice has been a priority for the CFTC after it was banned following the 2008 financial crisis. J.P. Morgan shares are fractionally lower today, but they're still down on the year by about 31%. That does it for the exchange and stick around because coming up on Power Lunch, it's the home builder ETF that has more than doubled since the March lows as home prices keep climbing. We're going to get a housing health check and the name's worth buying still. I'll join Tyler Matheson for that after this quick break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same
9: place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you.